Welcome back to Summer Reading with the Deals. This is Season 1, Episode 6, 7 total. Uh, This is going to be the episode where we get into Absalom, Absalom by William Faulkner, the text, uh, the syntax, the paragraphs, the sentences, the vocabulary. We're really going to talk about the composition of this novel in this episode. So we've talked a lot about the characters and the themes and the... Just a little bit of everything, but today we're going to do what we call close reading, um, where we talk about specific uh, sentences or paragraphs, and we just talk about just the, the style it's written in, and, and we'll talk some about which characters use what styles, um, and we've, we've obviously talked about that some already, but today that's what we're going to be um, going into in greater depth. Uh, so, uh, Whitney, before we get started... What was your reaction to reading these sentences this time around? Obviously, this is not your first time to read Absalom, Absalom, but as you're reading it, preparing for this podcast, were you, did you get to points in sentences where you felt kind of like drifting away in the sea, or did you feel like, oh, this is easy reading? I mean, talk talk to us about your read this time around with the syntax of this novel. Since I read this the last time, I've I've had more experience reading, um, you know, stream of consciousness um, style and reading, say, Virginia Woolf, or um, I think that prepares you to let the prose and the sentences wash over you a little more, just kind of get lost in the flow of them and not get too caught up in almost like not get too caught up in understanding every word. I would say, you know, I'm just going to let, even if it's a really long sentence, like a a paragraph length sentence, I'm just going to kind of see it through to the end. And then if I need to pause and go back and like ponder or straighten something out of my mind, I'll do that. But trying to let the image that's being presented, like live in my mind and not just go to the analytical immediately. I think that really helps Mm, with this type of writing. I did find, so sometimes Faulkner will have a big dash kind of digression or aside or something in the middle of his sentence. And it'll be like a long, what seems like already a long sentence. And then this kind of long, either a parenthetical or like a a digression created with dashes. And then the sentence goes on what seems like a long time. And for me, sometimes what I would do is skip the middle part and follow his original train of thought and then go back and read the middle part and then read the whole thing. I found that helped me as a reading strategy. Um, But yeah, so try not to stress over... Every word is just going to help in a novel that has so many big, bulky units of information. Mm. You mentioned uh, Virginia Woolf, and uh, for those readers that have never read any of her work, she uh, is one of the innovators of Stream of Consciousness, along with James Joyce and, of course, William Faulkner, who we're also talking about here. Um, But... one of the things that Whitney mentioned um, that I think is is true, maybe to some extent of, of this novel, but certainly is true for Jean Wolf, is some of her writing just feels aquatic. It feels maybe oceanic, and it just feels kind of like you don't want to get 
kind of caught up with looking at one wave or trying to get one drop of water in your eye or something like that. It's like you're in the middle of an ocean and the point of it is to swim out there and then swim back to the surface or to, you know, to, to the sand, to the beach. Um, and, and I think that that's how it feels reading Faulkner as well. However, I think it, in some ways it feels more like trying to swim across a raging river um, because uh, they're just they're different feelings in stream of consciousness where you're really inside someone's head uh, versus what is happening in this novel. There's, there's a little bit of stream of consciousness and I would say a lot of um, remembered narration. I mean, would you... Would, is that how you would describe like Rosa and Jason's sections? Is is it is is that what it is? Yeah, but to me, both Rosa and Jason narrate as if they are not censoring themselves at all. They're just letting it flow, um, and maybe more polished than your actual fragmented thoughts would be, of course, because you know your actual fragmented thoughts. Maybe it is closer to reading Joyce or something, where it's it's. It'd be really hard to follow the flow of someone's, you know, fragmented thoughts. Um, but, yeah, the, they're, I don't think that Rosa particularly is um, taking pains to help Quentin follow the, like, kind of winding paths that her thoughts are taking because... Uh, you know, we have to work at it. Probably Quentin has to work at it too to really understand what she's saying. Um, but yeah, like the the narrative is going to keep flowing on. And if you get too caught up in stopping and saying, well, "Well, why is this? What is that? What is why? Why this word? Why that?" Then you it's harder to get caught up in the flow of the story and in, in the yes. mood that's yes. being created. Um, Faulkner said about his books. Someone asked him, I think at that univers, one of those University of Virginia seminars he would do. Someone asked him, "I've read your books three or four times, some of them, and I still have trouble understanding them. And what what do you suggest?" And he said, "Read it again." <laughs> so um, I, there's probably some arrogance involved in in thinking that someone should just give over their whole reading life to reading your books over and over, but. I will say that I think if you could read this book once and just kind of let it like let it flow and then read it again with a more like kind of slowed down like analytical perspective, it probably would help you. Well, and Whitney brings up a great point about reading this, you know, say the first time, um, the zero read, if you will, which is, you know, it's all new to you or if you're listening to this podcast as you read it, then you're somewhat aware of what's happening hopefully we've clarified some things I, I don't feel like I'm clear on all of it myself and I've read it at least three times uh, I'm kind of rereading it as we get ready for each uh, podcast episode so you know I probably have a, a ramshackle fourth read you know coming together but um, this, you know whether you're, you're listening to this podcast and you're reading this for the first time or you've read it multiple times before um, I think you will all agree that the syntax of this novel is one of its greatest challenges um, and that it, it, it goes hand in hand with what, it, what the, the words and the sentences and the paragraphs are depicting, which is the reconstruction of history, 
um, the remembering of history, the telling of history to the next generation. Um, obviously, we've talked about the South many times. We'll talk about it more today. Uh, but it, everything that it's talking about in, in respect to Thomas Sutpen and his family and his connection to the Coldfields and his connection to the Compsons and Shreve just jumping right in and playing along... Um, I think that the sentences do justice to the complexity of the, the subject matter and to the themes, um, with with the syntax being as simple as, say, Ernest Hemingway's prose, which, by the way, there's one point where they're discussing, uh, Quentin and Shreve are discussing the, the, the um, you know, getting the message from Thomas Sutpen to Henry, like, you can't let Bond marry Judith. Uh, I wrote Hemingway-esque in the, in the, uh, in the margin, because it does feel like Faulkner finally allows the, the the plot of the story to just move very smoothly, just for a short bit to kind of show off, like, see, I can do what Hemingway does, but Hemingway can't do what I do. Well, I, Hemingway can't do what I do. And uh, maybe Hemingway could have done it, but I'm sure he would have been above it. He would have said he was, you know, too good to write like Faulkner. But... I think that the, if the syntax and the words and, and the, the paragraphs were simplified, it, it would take away from the power of the themes, the characters, the, the, you know, the plot, the design of the novel. And so, you know, if you're reading this for the first time, I think that's just like what he was saying. You have to kind of let it wash over you and, and not get uh, too caught up with, I, I mean, I had to look up the word effluvium. Like, I finally had to just break down and look it up because Jason Compton used it so many times that I just had to look it up. But um, it's not the kind of book you want to stop every few pages and look up a word for because it's just it's so demanding anyways. And, and I think that that's maybe that's part of its charm is that it, it like what he said, you know, read it a fourth time. Like, just read it again and again and again. And then eventually the difficult things will not seem as difficult and you'll be able to see some of the more powerful things. Um, I was just going to throw in, um, so Jean-Paul Sartre wrote about The Sound and the Fury, but what he wrote, I think, is pretty relevant to this book too. Um, He says that when you're reading a Faulkner novel, when you're reading The Sound and the Fury, you're tempted to stop and keep kind of creating a chronology in your head and creating a list of facts like like what happened exactly yeah. in your head basically to reconstruct a, a straightforward plot summary in your head um and he he said you know for the sound of the fury it would be something like jason and caroline compson have had three sons and a daughter the daughter caddy has given herself to dalton ames and become pregnant by him so you know etc but he says if you do this to the story you're telling another story. Like when you're with Faulkner, if you try to isolate the plot content and and prioritize that, you're really telling another story than he's telling. And he goes on Mm -hmm. to say, the story does not unfold. We discover it underneath each word. And he says, um, a fictional technique always relates back to the novelist's metaphysics. In other words, the technique by which he tells the story, the, form the sentences take, the order in which he presents the events, they actually give you these important clues to what the novelist believes about life. And he said, 
Faulkner's metaphysics is a metaphysics of time. I found that really relevant to Absalom, Absalom too. Interesting. And, you know, we've mentioned this concept of portraiture in this novel, and I, I do think that that's, that's one way to read this novel effectively is to see it as multiple portraits of Thomas Sutpen, multiple portraits of Charles Bond and Henry Sutpen, um, a self-portrait of Rosa Coldfield, and then I guess Jason Compson trying to paint a portrait of not just Thomas Sutpen, but really of this generation that preceded him, and I guess maybe and his, you know before that, this sense of Rosa Coldfield's generation, which is about you know a, a full generation older than Jason Compson, um, and then of course his father's generation that Sutpen is also a part of, and and um, so you know this idea of uh, when you look at a portrait, do you want to get stuck on one brushstroke? you know, or one color in a portrait, um, it, can, it can be um, distracting to focus too heavily on one element of a portrait of someone, especially if it's a self-portrait, because that person, if it's, you know, like, let's say a self-portrait by Van Gogh or Picasso, um, just because those are two of my favorites, um, th they want you to to just observe and observe and observe the entire painting and not just be like, gosh, I really like this color blue. Or I really like this, um, you know, I don't know, uh, the color red on Picasso's you know, ascot here, uh, but the rest of it I don't really care for. It's like, the, you know, you don't, you don't um, dismiss a painting because one color in the painting is not like what you would have painted it. Or, or you don't value a painting just because there's like one brushstroke of a color you like. Like, you have to connect to the image that's being displayed, and especially if it's a portrait, um, there's this element of does it look like the person that I you know that I know? If it's someone you know, or does it does it teach you something about that person that you couldn't have understood from anything else except a portrait? Um, and and so that's I think that goes hand in hand with the narration that the, the syntax of the different speakers here. Um, just like when he was saying with Sartre, it, it, what Faulkner is doing is not telling you the objective facts about something, which of course would be history. He's telling you the story through these different narrators, which makes it literature. Um, but he's doing it in his, his voice and his method. So all of his characters have distinctive narrative styles in a way, and we'll talk about those in a few minutes, but but they all have that authority of Faulkner that just comes across like a crushing wave or a you know, fast-moving river that you have to just not drown in. And to add to your metaphor of painting a little bit, this novel reminds me of a Picasso, one of those Picasso paintings, either one in which he portrays one person in a portrait with multiple faces, you know, um, where it's like you get a sense of that person almost in movement and a still image. Maybe you're getting different sides of the person's yeah. face or you get different takes on the way the person looks all in one painting. Yeah. Um, or one of those Picasso paintings uh, like I think of um, Demoiselle d'Avignon, where mm -hmm. you have what seem to be different styles in the same painting, different styles of portraiture that are inspired by classical European portraiture and then inspired by like African masks and yes. then Egyptian, you know, figures. And so you, you have this incredible 
diversity of depiction, even sometimes in Picasso, of like one person yeah, in one true. work. And I think it's that kind of experimental portraiture that we see Faulkner doing here. And, you know, I bring up portraiture because, A, I've been using the metaphor throughout because I think it, it helps it helps me to understand this novel um, because it isn't just an objective history. I mean, you know, that's, that's just, you know, point blank. It's not, it's not just the facts and it's not just one person telling the story. And, uh, it's not even just about the civil war. It's, it's about much more than that. And we'll talk about that in the final episode where we talk about whether this is the greatest American novel, (laughs) The greatest novel ever yet, yet written by an American, which Faulkner said it was in 1936. Um, but, you know, that's, like I said, that's for the next episode. But in terms of this concept of portraiture, I think, you know, when you look at a, a painting of a person, you, you either like the way they look or you don't. You don't need, a, lot, a lot of times you won't even notice the brush strokes or the colors of the paint or anything. You'll just notice the person's face and you'll either feel like, I want to keep looking at that or feel like, ugh, I don't want to look at that anymore. And, and I think that sometimes we just see the whole first and then we can go closer and closer and look at the parts. Um, and then when we see the whole again, we see it differently. And I think that that's exactly what... Uh, looking at the Civil War, looking at the antebellum South, looking at the, the postbellum South and the Reconstruction, all of that changes after you read this novel. And so, um, you know, th- this novel is meant to really shake the historian and all of us. You know, the, you know, every person wants to know something about the past, I hope, and hopefully it's something that will help you in the present or help you for the future, Um and I think that what, what Faulkner is doing with the way he tells this story through the sentences and the digressions and all these things is to show us that you can't just stare eye to eye with a portrait because the portrait will never blink. Whereas you, you know, you'll eventually get tired, want to sit down, want to get a glass of water, you know, get, you know, get annoyed that the people are, you know, walking right past you, taking a picture of it with their phone and moving on. And you're just trying to understand this, this person, you know, and, and, and it's not just the person of Thomas Sutpen that this portrait is. It's really a portrait of the South. It's a portrait of Quentin Compson. It's a portrait, you know, we've talked about this in all the episodes, this is about, to me, I think this novel is really hinging on portraiture, and Faulkner himself was an avid artist, and so even though he's famous for being a fiction writer, he also, you know, wrote poetry and, and wrote Hollywood screenplays and, and, you know, did drawings and paintings, and, and sure enough, he, he would try to draw something or paint something that he wanted to be the cover of his novel, and uh, as Whitney told me, his publishers would just be like, no, this isn't going to work. So um, I can't imagine what the cover for As I Lay Dying would have been, but instead it looks like a, I think it's just a blank, you know, tan sheet with the words As I Lay Dying by William Faulkner. Um, but the the sense of what he is doing with his sentences, I think, is it's as distinctive as looking at a Vincent Van Gogh painting or Paul Cezanne painting 
or, or Picasso and m- many of his different phases, um, as soon as you read, you know, a couple of pages of this, you feel, you feel immediately, you know, locked in, in, in Faulkner's world. And I think that um, reading this novel and trying to do anything else, like trying to, you know, live your normal life or whatever, uh, makes it challenging because it is such a shift. Like you have to go into this. It's almost another language, and it's not another language because it's it's not English. It's because it's it's so highly stylized, and no one talks like this, and no one even thinks like this. But somehow Faulkner wrote it in such a way that it you believe that Rosa Colefield thinks like this, or Jason Compson thinks like this, or Shreve or Quentin, and so. Um, as we get into these sentences, you know, one of the main reasons I wanted to talk about this is I have this this aspiration, which please don't beat me to this, listeners. I want to write a literary criticism of this novel about the importance of short sentences in this novel because there are so few of them, and I think that they hold a separate meaning depending on who's narrating and depending on where they are in relation to Long sentences, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I'm, the goal is a 10 to 15 page paper and send it to a conference and get it published and whatever. Um, but who cares? Hopefully it'll happen. We'll see. Um, but I thought we'd start with the two uh, non present narrators. So obviously, Quentin and Shreve are present in their dorm room. Um, but really, the, the two narrators that, that occupy most of the novel are uh, Rosa Coldfield and Jason Compson III. And so Rosa, I noticed as I was reading through it this time through, Rosa uses short sentences only when she doesn't know something. So she will, she will articulate very briefly, succinctly, powerfully that she doesn't know something. And then she'll go into a long tirade about something she does know. Meanwhile, Jason Compson will use these short staccato sentences to articulate what he does know. And then his long-winded sentences are his speculations and conjectures. So Whitney, talk to us about, you know, this sense of like, as you were reading it, did you notice short sentences in the midst of all of these long-winded, you know, rambling sentences. I certainly didn't notice what you are describing, that distinction between the two of them. I mean, I probably just here and there noticed some short sentences and Mm -hmm. thought like, oh, yeah, that's a nice change of pace or something. But I do think what you're saying makes sense because Rosa is obsessed with her own past, um, and with the people who related to to it. So the things that she doesn't know, the things that don't relate to kind of her and her past and her people are less interesting to her, maybe. So she dismisses them in short sentences, whereas Jason Compson honestly doesn't seem to have much going on at this point in his life beyond his thought life, you know. Um, he seems to be drinking a lot and thinking a lot and his like philosophical flights of fancy um 
and it, that's kind of where he's exerting all his creativity. And so I think for him, the facts of this are a lot less um, immediate and, and vital than they are for Rosa. So the part he's enjoying is the part where he gets to just make something up. When I, I bring this up about Rosa, for example, okay, here's this is on page 12. No, period. I hold no brief for myself, period. I don't plead youth since what creature in the South since 1861, comma, man, woman, N-word, or mule, comma, had had time or opportunity not only to have been young, but to have heard what being young was like from those who had. So you can see she goes from a one-word sentence, no, to a, a short sentence, to a long sentence, and it, it really feels like she just, she, she, she almost bounces off something negative or something that she doesn't know and then goes, it's, it's like she, she throws a ball against the wall trying to get it to come back faster each time. And so, you know, she'll get a sentence like on page 13. And most of all, I do not plead myself, colon, a young woman emerging from a holocaust which had taken parents' security and all from her who had seen all that living meant to her fall into ruins about the feet of a few figures with the shapes of men, but with the names and statures of heroes, semicolon, dash. A young woman, I say, thrown into daily and hourly contact with one of these men who, despite what he might have been at one time and despite what she might have believed and even known about him, comma, had fought for four honorable years for the soil and traditions of the land where she had been born, parentheses, and the man... Who had done that, comma, villain died, though he be, comma, would have possessed in her eyes, comma, even if only from association with them, comma, the stature and shape of a hero, too, end parentheses. And now he was also, he also emerging from the same Holocaust in which she had suffered, comma, with nothing to face what the future held for the South, but his bare hands and the sword which he had, which he at least had never surrendered, and the citation for valor from his defeated commander in chief, period. Oh, he was brave, period. I have never gainsayed that, period. So there's this sense of she puts these short sentences into her into her speech, and I think part of it is she is speaking, and that's, you know, we always are going to articulate ourselves differently in speech than in writing because we can always delete something or shorten it or lengthen it, um, and, and unless it's like text messaging where it's, it's real time, we can always edit it, whereas she seems to speak with a purpose where she just goes into these long... I mean, that, that sentence I just read is half a page long. Go. <laughs> I raised my hand just then. <laughs> um, okay, first of all, I'm going to say, here are how the, the three or four sentences, I mean, paragraphs previous to that one that he was just reading from begin, and she's narrating all of them. He wasn't a gentleman, period. He wasn't even a gentleman, period. Then the next one. No, not even a gentleman, period. The next one. No. The next one. No. See, I, I'm noticing, I'm glad you pointed this section out because I'm noticing that for me, I see a pattern in her brief sentences in which she's being... Um, Obviously emphatic, mm -hmm. but also 
I think she's trying to defend herself in all of the short sentences, so she wants them to be emphatic. Like she's defending defending herself against like almost like the illusion that Thomas Edwin could become a gentleman, which I think both she and um, Ellen and her father, all three of them kind of fell prey to that illusion. And she's reminding herself he wasn't even a gentleman. Um, And when she keeps saying no, no, what she's saying no about in those paragraphs is that she's not defending herself and she's not defending Ellen. She has no grief for herself and Ellen. She's not pleading for herself before the, the sort of court of law here. Um, she wants to, I think she wants to indict Thomas Sutpen, but she's not saying, I'm not trying to defend myself. Clearly, though, in the part Adam just read that rambles so much, she is defending herself. So I think <laughs> yes. she she's being defensive in these short kind of emphatic sentences and I'm not defending myself. I'm not defending myself. There's no excuse for what I've done. There's no excuse for what Ella's done. We should have seen he wasn't a gentleman. We should have known better. But then she does excuse herself. She's like, I went through this Holocaust of the Civil War. Um, You know, I lost my father. Um, He was, in fact, a heroic soldier. All of those things are included in the sentence Adam just read, that long sentence. He was brave. That's another way of defending herself, I think, is that she says, I I know he wasn't a gentleman. I know he wasn't a gentleman. I know we shouldn't have fallen for it. But wasn't there something brave about him? Wasn't there something gallant about him? You can't gainsay that. Now, it's interesting to compare that to what Jason Thompson does. This is on page 56. And by the way, I'm just like, I'm not picking quite at random, but I'm pretty much picking at random, like from the sections where these different people are narrating. Just to just to point out the sentences. That summer she saw Henry again too, period. She had not seen him since that since the summer before, although he had been home Christmas with his friend from the university comma. And she had heard about the balls and parties at Sutpen's hundred during the holidays, but she had her she and her father had not gone out, period. So so there's a short sentence and then a longer sentence, and here comes another short sentence. And, well, this this is, I didn't pick the right one, but whatever. No, I, let me, okay, let me skip to the next. So th- there's this sense of, like I said, Jason likes to state the fact, but then embellish, right? And so that next sentence where he's talking about, heard about all the balls and parties at Sutpen's 100 during the holidays, like, how does he know that? He doesn't know that. He's, no. He, he is, he's presuming that. But this is, this is on page 57. He says, then she stopped seeing Ellen even. That is, Ellen also stopped coming to the house, stopped breaking the carriage's weekly ritual of store-to-store where, comma, without getting out, comma, Ellen bade merchant and clerk fetch out to her the cloth and the meager fripperies and baubles which they carried and which they knew even better than, than she that she would not buy but instead would merely finger and handle and disarrange and then reject, comma, all in that flow of bright, pettish volubility. I mean, volubility, seriously, Jason. Like, no one uses that word. But that's that's a great example of, here's this short sentence, then she stops seeing Ellen even, referring to Rosa, right? But then he goes into this imagination of Ellen 
being brought these different things at this at the store that they know she's not going to buy, but they're like, well, maybe she will because she's a rich lady. And, and he just, he gets enamored. I think he's enamored with the sound of his own voice. And enamored with, he, he makes Ellen seem like this shallow, self-involved, like petty, he just has pettish volubility here, but you know, like she needs to be petted. She mm-hmm. can get angry um, quickly. She just blabs constantly, whether someone's listening or not. This is so different from the picture of Ellen that I felt that Rosa was painting, where Ellen seemed like a tragic heroine when Rosa was talking about yes. her, um, like like from a fairy tale. And then you get Jason's take on it. Ellen and she seems like the the most like petty ridiculous woman and he is assuming her motives in this sentence he's assuming knowledge of the motives of all the shopkeepers in town you know he didn't know any of these people like he just I think he's enjoying his misogynistic fantasy of how like Ellen really didn't deserve any better than Thomas Sutpen and she was like playing a, a kind of a shallow role and had hardened into that over the years. Well, and this, this is coming from page 61, and this is, this is Jason's version of exactly what Rosa was doing, which was, no, he wasn't a gentleman. No, he wasn't even a gentleman. Well, it's page 61. It says, so she didn't even see Ellen anymore. Apparently, Ellen had now served her purpose, completed the, blight, sorry, the bright, pointless noon and afternoon of the butterfly's summer and vanished, perhaps not out of Jefferson, comma, but out of her sister's life anyway, comma, to be seen, but the one time more, but the one time more dying in bed in a darkened room in a house on which fateful mischance had already laid its hand to the extent of scattering the black found foundation on which it had been erected and removing its two male mainstays, comma, husband and son, dash, the one in the risk and danger of battle, comma, the other apparently into oblivion, period. Henry just Henry had just vanished, period. And so there's that same sense of he is giving us the facts. She, so she didn't even see Ellen anymore, period. Henry had just vanished, period. Those and seem it, pretty verifiable. Right. They're, they're, they're verifiable truths. And that's why I think it's so interesting that Rosa uses so many of her short sentences for either denials or admissions of, I didn't, you know, I don't know, I don't pretend to know, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I can't defend what I've done. I don't know why I did it, you know. And, and there's just this interesting mixture between the, the, the two different uses of short sentences because on the one hand, Rosa is helping us recognize she's not omniscient with short sentences, but then Jason is giving us this kind of omniscient, like, you know, every, everyone can verify this as, as true um, in his short sentences. And, and, you know, both of them are so long-winded. And then, of course, you get into Shreve, who, oh, my gosh. Shreve, I don't know if he's a long-winded person, but I think he's, he's heard Quentin talk about his dad enough that he has embodied, and it says, sure enough, it says that, it, you know, he reminds Quentin of his father. And so he talks not as Shreve McCannon, but as Jason Compson. And so there's this element of the narration is never that far from, you know, 
Jason, so to speak, because even though he's not in the room, his letter is in the room, and Quentin seems to just be, you know, un- unable to escape the 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 living ghost of his father, um, and and so this element of as you get into the Shreve and Quentin sections where they're talking and they're narrating you start to realize that they do the same thing. They get into these same long-winded sentences, and, and really their short sentences don't seem to have as much purpose because a lot of their short sentences are not their own uh, narrations. They're the short sentences that they say Charles and Henry are saying to each other or that Sutton's saying to the grandfather, Thompson. Oh, that they're thinking. Yes, yes. Like, one thing you can always look out for is... Um, Faulkner's use of italics, which he was pretty particular about. Like, I read about how um, his publisher tried to add a few italics for clarification um, of when the time was shifting in The Sound of the Fury, and he sent back a sharp rebuke and said, "Um, I know you meant well, I did too, or something like that. Um, But in the, like, I'm looking at page 266, 267, I really just, again, it kind of opened to a random page on which Shreve was talking. Mm -hmm. But I noticed that um, whenever one of the the characters, like Charles Bond or Henry or someone, is thinking, it's in italics. So you notice there are little yeah. tags, too, where it mm-hmm. says, like, telling himself, um, he thinking, etc. Um, but when you're reading, like, Jason or Rosa's narration of the story, there's no italics for the thinking um, but I, the, I think it's because Shreve particularly is giving these direct thoughts. He's just like, he's writing a novel, whereas you still feel like the story is being filtered through the consciousness of Rosa and Jason the other times, yes. but this is like turning more into some sort of novelistic story in the last part. Well, Whitney brings up a great distinction between Shreve's vision of it and Quentin's vision of it. Quentin's vision of this is he's trying... <laughs> He's trying to remember and envision. He's, he's basically trying to um, put all of the data, if this was a file, he's trying to put it all on the hard drive. And Shreve is trying to, you know, type it out and print it out, and, 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 and he thinks it, that'll be that. You know, like, it's, it's going to wash over him. It's not going to stay with him and haunt him. Whereas Quentin has this possess, possessiveness of it, almost like, he doesn't want to write it and tell the story because then it just becomes another story. And this is not just a story for him. It's, it's, I mean, I dare say it's the meaning of life for him. Like he is living for the sake of knowing the history of the South. There's a part too where Shreve is talking and it, then it says he ceased again it was just as well since he had no listener perhaps he was aware of it then suddenly he had no talker either though possibly he was not aware of this because now neither one of them was there they were both in carolina and the time was 46 years ago and then we go into this big italicized section there are certain sections that are like italicized completely in the the shreve and quentin sections and i think those are parts where they're not even saying it out loud necessarily, or they're just saying it. They're not saying it out loud in this, like, it, it really is as if it's starting to become just a novel or a film or something. It's just yeah. depicting it. Yeah. They're, 
their subjective lens is like kind of being stripped away in this it's not an, an obvious, like, heavy-handed thing anymore, and you're just lost in the story in those parts. It's like the italics are functioning as a signal that you're getting lost in the story and that you don't have, like, a frame narrator anymore, even though you do. But it's like Faulkner wants to signal that these people get so lost in the story, it's like they're living it again, like yes. like they've inhabited it. Rose's whole long chapter in italics, which feels very, like, kind of immediate, um, and then this section toward the end is like that. Well, and it's interesting to contrast this sense of like Quentin and Shreve uh, could be like, you know, speaking this ESP or something like that. Like that the, they 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 have some sort of twin, you know, uh, you know, overlap where they don't even have to tell each other the story because they've already told each other the story, and so now they can just like almost like play a video game with the screen off. Like that's, that's how it feels. Um, like, you, you know, if you've played Tony Hawk's pro skater three, as many times as Brennan Sumich and I did, um, or, or star Wars rogue squadron two, uh, or several other games, um, or, or heaven forbid Mario Kart 64. There's this sense of once you've played a video game enough times, you really don't need to watch what's happening. You know, like where to turn and where to shoot and where to, you know, whatever your, your, um, you know, ob objectives are. And so they had, I think they have this objective of we need to get to the point where we're certain why Henry kills Charles Bond. And maybe they get to that point. It's, there's no way to know for sure, but that's, that's part of, I think the way the syntax aids us in as readers in understanding what they're doing is they're not they're not doing this for the first time they're doing this for the last time like they're doing it to conclusively understand this this family history of the Sutpen clan um, and as we talked about with the title you know it, it's like th they want to conclusively understand why King David screamed Absalom Absalom you know it's like they, they, they want to have the the official truth and I think the thing about it is is well I'm sure when David said that in second Samuel the Bible he had multiple reasons right and there you know there's a complexity to why Henry would kill Bond but it's something we can't ever know the the full depth of the same way we can't ever know the full depth of David's grief over Absalom at, at the end of that story. And so, you know, Quentin is, he's sharing this with Shreve, and I think he's allowing Shreve to kind of become part of the family, you know? Um, like I said, twins. I mean, it's it's not like he's becoming a McCannon. <laughs> it's like Shreve is becoming the, you know, the missing Compson family member. Um, and I thought I'd read from this. This is page 70. This is the beginning of chapter 4. And it says, It was still not dark enough for Quentin to start, comma, not yet dark enough to suit Miss Coldfield at least, comma, even discounting the 12 miles out there and the 12 miles back, period. Quentin knew that, period. He could almost see her waiting in one of the dark, airless rooms in the little grim house's impregnable solitude. Now, I bring these sentences up. I'm going to read the next one in a second. The first sentence is an objective truth. It's not dark enough for Quentin to start. 
not dark enough to suit Miss Coldfield at least, even discounting 12 miles out there and 12 miles back. Quentin knew that. So, so he's got this certainty, but then you throw in the word almost. He could almost see her waiting in one of the airless, dark airless rooms in the little grim house's impregnable solitude. And, and look at how the diction goes from the first sentence is what I would call easy to read word choice. This sentence, he could almost see her waiting in one of the dark, airless rooms in the little grim house's impregnable solitude. It goes from easy to medium to difficult, in my opinion. Like, impregnable solitude is, that that's some highfalutin diction right there. And it's more abstract. Like, it makes me yes. pause and think, like, the house itself is alone, right? Like, the yeah. house is personified, you know, is solitary yeah. Um, and impregnable. It's like a fortress. And, yeah. you know, I, my mind starts wandering down the implications of the words. Yes. Um, rather than just being able to read it in a straightforward way and keep moving. And then the next sentence says, she would have no light burning because she would be out of the house soon and probably some mental descendant or kinsman of him or her who had told her once that light and moving air carried heat had also told her that the cost of electricity was not in the actual time the light burned, but in the retroactive overcoming of primary, primary inertia when the switch was snapped, colon, that that was some, that that was what showed on the meter period. And, and so Quentin is kind of mirroring Jason's presuppositions, but it's almost like Jason just runs with it, but then Quentin like runs out of gas. And then he, you know, then he gets to, you know, the next sentence. And, and it's, it's in some ways when we're thinking, you know, when we're thinking with Quentin, like this, this beginning of this chapter four, there's an element of he's got one foot in reality. He's got one foot in the present. He's got one foot in what I would call solid ground. But he's never got both feet on solid ground the whole time he's in Jefferson. Like the whole time he's going to Miss Rosa Coldfields and the whole time they're going out to Sutpins 100, there's just an element of, I don't even know what to call it, except danger. It's, it's psychological danger maybe or emotional danger because it's not I mean he's not really physically endangered that you know realistically it's not that physically dangerous but the danger doesn't end when he you know gets out of there and has proven to Miss Rosa Goldfield okay yep Henry's out here you know we're done. the danger of being haunted I think because it keeps emphasizing how much dust there is when he's driving out there, which would be literal, of course. Um, it would be dusty on that road, but um, you know it's hot. It's hot and dry and dusty, but it's emphasized so much. And from the very first page of this novel, um, dust becomes a symbol for the dead who still just linger in the air. Yes. Like if you live in Jefferson, these people who've been living and then have died and are decomposing in Jefferson are still, you're in, they're in the air you breathe. That's the picture that Faulkner paints. They're in the very dust modes that you see floating in the sun sunshine uh, and this dark room that he's in with Miss Rosa. And so this, this opening really does mirror the opening of the whole book where he's like yeah. back in this room, even though he's not physically there, it shows he can't get out of this room with Miss Rosa in her house. It's trapped in that impregnable solitude. Yeah, and imagining you know in the first chapter, the one of the first things it says is that pr- 
probably someone told Miss Rosa that a dark room would stay cooler than a lit up room, so she would keep everything all closed up. And then it says here, someone probably told Miss Rosa that you use all the electricity when you flip the switch. So you should just never, it's not having the electricity on, it's actually flipping the switch that uses the power, which is funny because I, I think I remember people telling me that when I was a kid too. But they're like, don't turn the lights on and off. That uses way more electricity <laughs> than just leaving them on. This coming from uh, the the daughter of an electrician. I will <laughs> uh, clarify, he did not tell me that. <laughs> Um, this this podcast, this episode has been sponsored in part by Raul Electric. Um, in, in case you need a, a Generac generator, uh, call Rusty Raul. Um, that that was just a free plug, just just because. Um, but you know this this sense, like what he is saying, the dust of the dead is still in Rose's room, and it's like the dust of her father and the dust of Ellen. And the dust, you know, Ellen didn't literally die in her room, but she, you know, her particles, so to speak, uh, were still in the house from when she left, and I'm sure they never got cleaned. And so there's this element of, like, to clean is somehow, like, dishonoring to the dead. And I think that, you know, Whitney is just, like, squirming with that thought because she's, she likes it clean. She likes things to be clean. And I do too, but I'm a little bit more messy. Um, but I think that that's a big thing about this novel and, and, and the sentences aren't clean. You know, the sentences are just so, I mean, they're so messy. One thing that's awesome about them is that he doesn't waste his images, even though they're so teeming and there's so many of them. Like, I think it pays off to stop and pay attention to every sentence, even the ones that seem like maybe they're a little bit kind of like inconclusive or happenstance like that sentence about turning the electricity on and overcoming inertia like fog this sounds like something I tell my students all the time but Faulkner could have chosen to write anything and he wrote this sentence about Miss Rosa having trouble justifying to herself overcoming the inertia of to turn on the lights, she sits in the dark. And I think that there's, that fits her whole life in a lot of ways, that she, it would require overcoming inertia for her to break out of her past and envision a future for herself yeah. and make a change in her life, and she's never done it. And the closest she can come to overcoming her inertia is to go out to something's under that night, which is what they're about to do. Um, in a way, this is really just putting the final nail in the coffin of her past so that she can kind of be at peace and die, I think. It's not moving forward. But for her, that's the best she can get. It's the closest she can come to overcoming inertia. So I just wanted, before we moved on from that sentence, I wanted to point out, like, I just don't think Faulkner wastes an image. He doesn't describe things just to put a picture in your mind. They, They all, they form these patterns of imagery that mean something for the actual kind of purpose of the novel. And of course, there are writers like Ernest Hemingway who describe things so sparsely that when you do get a long description, like for example, he describes the bus ride from wherever they're staying to Pamplona. I can't remember. I'm sorry. But um, the way he describes it sounds like the way a Paul Cezanne painting of like the mountain at Osh 
Like, it sounds the way those paintings look. And I think that Faulkner, even though he has way more descriptions and metaphors than Hemingway does, I think he's equally purposeful because, like Whitney was saying, he could have picked anything. Like, he could have described Rosa anyway. And, and I do think, you know, you know, disclaimer, sometimes writers do things subconsciously. They don't do it intentionally. But it's on the text for a reason. It's either a very purposeful reason or it's a reason that that shows that it it made an impression on him when someone told him that the way that Whitney was saying so you you put it in your novel well you don't know while you're doing it oh my gosh that's you know that that's a perfect metaphor for Rosa Coldfield but but it feels right it feels right and intuition yes. can be wise in situations like yes. that and I, and I think that because he comes back to that, that metaphor, it shows that he has some intentionality to it, that it wasn't just a one-and-done, he forgot that he even wrote it. Um, I think it was intentional at that point to kind of put us back into the beginning of the novel, almost like restarting the level, um, to borrow another video game reference. Um, I tried to find Mario Kart and a, and a controller to play it the other day, and I, I couldn't find it. All I could find was the Nintendo 64, so I don't know where they are. But I've been looking. It has we'll, to be somewhere. We'll find them. They're somewhere. They're in the house. But, um, but that, that idea of like restarting at Chapter 4, it, there is an element of... And repeating at the yeah, same time. Yeah, and repeating, exactly. Like, yeah. Retreading, re-reconstructing. Um, there, there just is this a re reenacting as well. There just is this element in this novel of re- repetition, uh, but also forward movement and also backward movement. It's kind of like, do you dare to go back all the way to Sutpin being a little boy? Do you dare to go forward all the way to, um, you know, uh, um, Sutpin's hundred nineteen oh nine? Go see that Henry is in fact there, like. In some ways, it's easier, like Whitney said, to be inert and just kind of stay like Rosa kind of sees herself as a ghost for 43 years, and yet she, she comes back to life. Like, she she, she revives um, in order to go out to Sutpen's Hundred and really to, I, I don't know if she necessarily saves Henry, but I think she kind of redignifies Henry, um, which, you know... There, there's something to be said of that, and maybe we'll talk about it in the last episode. But this concept of these sentences, it's, it's interesting the way that the sentences and the paragraphs and the word choices all come together. This, this novel is over, I think it's over 100,000 words. I th- I'm almost positive, and it's, um, it's overwhelming. I mean, it's, it's just it's an overwhelming thing to read, but it is so rich that, like Whitney said, it's worth it to just stop and think about, you know, and, and just just consider that concept of, like, for example, the, the lights, you know, don't turn the lights on, it'll waste electricity. Well, that sense of, like, who thinks about that? Well, people that don't want their, their lights to get cut out, you know, the people that, that, that don't want to run out of money. And, and, you know, if you didn't grow up in the Great Depression, you'll probably never understand just why people like my grandmother are so 
penny pinching. And so, you know, why do people keep their houses at 78 <laughs> all summer long and not turn the air conditioning lower than that? Well, it's because they didn't have air conditioning. They, you know, they see it as a luxury instead of a birthright. And and part of knowing about the, the history of the, the United States and the South and the Civil War and all these things is to know their world from their perspective. And that's that's what we're getting here. Um, and I thought I'd bring up this, this passage. This is from page 88. It says, this is on the same page where it says, I will believe, I will, I will, whether it's true or not, I will believe. Uh, later down on, you know, toward the bottom of the page, it says, because he, parentheses Bond, would be talking now lazily, almost cryptically, st- stroking onto the plate itself, now the picture which he wanted there, semicolon. I can, I can imagine how he did it, dash. The calculation, the surgeon's alertness and cold attachment, the exposure's brief, so brief as to be cryptic, almost staccato, the plate unaware of what the complete picture would show, scarce seen, yet ineradicable. I bring that up because you start to see the word staccato come back again and again. Of course, staccato is a musical term, which means a, a, a definitive articulation on a note. Uh, such that it sounds like this. That's what staccato technique is. And so um, he says that there, and then you get this nice long passage at the bottom of 100 and top of 101. I'm just going to start somewhere. Uh, You get, okay, you get born and you try this and you don't know why, only you keep on trying it and you were born at the same time with a lot of other people all mixed up with them, like trying to, having to, moving your, move your arms and legs with strings, only the same strings are hitched to all the other arms and legs and the others are all trying and they don't know why either, except that all, they said that the strings are all in one another's way, like five or six people all trying to make a rug on the same loom, only each one wants to weave his own pattern into the rug, and it can't matter, you know that, or the ones that set up the loom would have arranged things a little better, and yet it must matter because you keep on trying or having to keep on trying, and then all of a sudden it's all over, and all you have left is a block of stone with scratches on it, provided there was someone to remember to have the marble scratched and set up or had time to, and it rains on it, and the sun shines on it, and after a while they don't even remember the name and what the scratches were trying to tell, and it doesn't matter. And, that I mean, that right there, if you want to think about what's the most staccato thing in life, it's inscriptions on a tombstone, you know, th- that, uh, you know, 1982 through, you know, let's just say I live to be 100, 2082, you know, that's a that's about as brief a, a summary of my life as you could make. And yet those sentences are anything but staccato. Like yeah. the first sentence went on from where you stopped. It, it wasn't exactly. even finished yet. Like sentences flow and flow and flow and they build up multiple metaphors within the same sentence. Like that second sentence where Judith is talking, um, it's funny. I wrote the word. Yeah. On the margin. <laughs> like I really relate to this. Um, like just how, complicated life feels sometimes and how you just kind of don't know how to make any headway because there's too many other people making things so complicated. I was like, I feel that, Judith. But Judith is mixing up a metaphor of being a puppet 
but you, there's like a bunch of other puppets around you, like that in sync video, you know. Bye bye bye. Yeah, and you're all getting tangled up together while you're trying to dance and do your thing. Um, and then she immediately in the same sentence says, oh, it, and it's also like five or six people trying to make a rug on the same loom and you're getting your strings all mixed up together. And then she says, and it, it also is like, you know, having just a block of stone left at the end and all it has is scratches on it and that's all that's left of your life. So it's like confusion, confusion, confusion. And then too much simplicity at the end, like yeah. too much quiet at the end. The contrast is really getting to her. But there's so many metaphors packed into that. And then the other sentence is he's mixing up this metaphor. So the other sentence is them trying, it's basically Jason Compson trying to imagine Charles Bond slowly exposing Henry to this like decadent New Orleans yeah. life where, so Henry who has a puritanical streak won't be like shocked and turned away in horror. So he gets like a little bit more and a little bit more to the point where he finally goes and meets, um, Charles's like mistress, wife and child and everything. But he compares bond to a surgeon with like, you know, just this surgical precision with which he slowly exposes Henry compares Henry to, um, like a, a plate, like that a photograph was taken on that's being, you know, exposed slowly bit by bit in these staccato exposures. Um, He talks about, as it was, it keeps going. It just kind of takes some other directions as well in terms of um, what he's comparing him to, but he builds up metaphor after metaphor in this beautiful way that to me actually reminds me of scripture. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I teach a, a little presentation to the New Testament class at my school um, about figurative language in the New Testament. And there are a few places where Paul or where Christ himself is um, talking or writing and they mix their metaphors and just flow from one metaphor to another. And it's kind of considered um, bad writing to mix your metaphors um, within within a sentence by some people who strive for clarity. But I think when something is as mysterious as God or the past, since mixing your metaphors is a good way to show that complexity yeah. and mystery. Well, Whitney brought up the, the, the concept of the loom and, and the, you know, weaving this tapestry. And I think, you know, I just, my note was <laughs> a fitting metaphor for the narration of this novel. Um, and, and I just wrote, yeah. <laughs> and I was thinking about this idea of, you know, staccato short sentences in this novel. Well, in, in a tapestry or a rug or anything that's been woven, um, one color that stands out is, is going to, you know, even if it's like one, you know, one black thread on a white, uh, you know, button-down shirt or one bright orange thread on a, on a, you know, black shirt or something like that, it's like, one one color that strongly contrasts another would would be very noticeable, and that's that's why I say these these short sentences are so noticeable in this novel because there's so many long threads being woven by all these different people, and it it really is powerful to read. Like if you were to just take the short sentences of the novel, it'd be like a really kind of plain-spoken, historical, you know, just no-nonsense, uh, you know, sober-minded history. Like, it would just, 
it would sound very simple. And, you know, I think that that's the thing is if you just took out the easy things, then the, the past would be easy to understand. But, you know, do we understand someone's past because we look at their inscriptions on their tombstone? No. And even Rosa, who has put this, like, very long-winded uh, description of, of, of Ellen on her tombstone, right? Is it Ellen's tombstone or Judith's tombstone? I think it's Ellen's where it's like yeah. making her a warning to the world to not make the same yes. mistakes or something like that. And, and so she's like gone to the trouble to write this like very poetic, very, you know, uh, highfalutin thing on her tombstone. And, and yet, you know, to what degree do we allow tombstones to, to shape us and to, and to, to inform us and to, to guide us you know, and, and I think a lot of people, I mean, I, I just went to a funeral today for a friend's husband and, and you know, I saw a lot of tombstones and I, I don't really remember many of the things that I saw in part because when you go to a, a, a graveside funeral, the last thing you, you are is clear minded. You're in a, a grief mindset. You're in a, you know, you want to honor the family. You want to, you know, in this case, had to keep my social distance and, you know, um, and, and this sense of, like, you're not in the cemetery to learn from the dead. You're in the cemetery to honor the, the, the living and to remember the, the dead. And, um, and it's just interesting that people go to the trouble to, to have so much information on their tombstones. Um, and, and, of course, a lot of times it's the family that does that. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think that that's a great way to honor your, you know, honor the person's life. But how many times do people really meditate on what are on those tombstones? And the answer is not often because I think it's hard to let something like that that's etched in stone actually govern you, you know? And so this, this idea of the tapestry is much more uh, illuminating in terms of like, when you're alive, you're just weaving this tapestry with all these other people and you're, you know, getting tangled on each other's strings and that's how it feels to be in a family or in a friendship or relationship um and and that sense of can you make a perfect tapestry no and if if you did it would be so simple that it wouldn't be compelling to look at and so you know this idea of reading these sentences i think you know part of what this novel is trying to do is make this ambitious tapestry and if it had been a little like needlepoint work on a little i don't know three inch, you know, three inch in diameter circle, it just, it, it would be cute, it would be quaint, but it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be epic, and it wouldn't be, uh, it could be, it could be pretty or even beautiful, but it wouldn't be beautiful on the same scale as like, like we've seen the tapestries from, you know, the kings of England from the 12 and 1300s in the uh, Cloisters Museum in New York City, and those things, I mean, those things are impressive. Those things are so ornately made, and you know that they were made by hand, and 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 it just goes to show that you know people will will take great pains to do something if they know it's going to be for someone like say a king. So, you just made me think of um, I think Charlotte Bronte said about Jane Austen. I'm paraphrasing, but said that it was like she was executing a fine painting on a two-by-two-inch piece of china. 
And Charlotte Bronte wanted to create a wild, epic, romantic, overwhelming masterpiece, I think. You know, she didn't want to be confined to, like, a ladylike piece of work. I really don't agree with that assessment of Jane Austen. Jane Austen's so incisive and and intelligent and and witty and... um, yeah, she's got a lot going on there. I think Charlotte Bronte couldn't appreciate because they were temperamentally too different. But I do think, you know, Faulkner's from the, there's like kind of a running, like, are you an Austin person or a Bronte person kind of argument and the kind of people who like 19th century literature as a hobby. But um, Kind Faulk- of like, are you a Faulkner person or a Hemingway person? Right. Uh, I'd argue that Faulkner would, uh, is a Bronte person. You know, he, he's a... Um, he his characters, for one thing, are rooted in a sense of place in a way that's very very true for the Brontes, but also um, their passions overwhelm them. You know, um, their their desires are so powerful that they can't be eradicated. And so I think it is not it's not as not as tame. Um, it's not like you were saying, it's not like painting on a little piece of ivory. Yeah. Well, we'll talk more about, you know, putting this novel in the context of the other novels we've read and, and just American literature and, and literature as a whole. And, and, you know, just this concept of what is the, you know, what do we see the value of Aslan Aslan as, you know, at the end of this process of podcasting about it. But, you know, I, I just noticed, I think it was the, I think it was the first time I read through it, I noticed how many long sentences there were. The second time I noticed the short sentences. The third time, which is the most recent time, I I started thinking about why the short sentences. And of course now I'm thinking, you know, as I reread it again, I really want to articulate, you know, with authority, like why I think these short sentences are where they are in the novel. And I think, you know, I've, I've, I've covered some of those things and some of those bases here, but one of the things that you see is you see that word staccato show up again on page 139. It says the two of them, I'm just starting close to the bottom. The two of them, brother and sister, curiously alike as if the difference in sex had merely sharpened the common blood to a terrific and almost unbearable similarity speaking to one another in short, brief, staccato sentences like slaps, as if they stood breast to breast, striking one another in turn, neither making an attempt to guard against the blows. Now you can't marry him, period. Why can't I marry him? Question mark. Because he's dead, period. Dead, question mark? Yes, period. I killed him, period. And and that reminds me of Quentin's interaction with Henry at the end of the novel. And, and, yeah. And Judas with her father when he gets back from the war. Yes. And so this concept of these short, uh, sp- you know, spoken sentences back back and forth, um, it's just interesting that, you know, Quentin and Shreve are, are assuming that they would, you know, these characters would speak to each other so tersely and so, <laughs> and so plainly, and yet they would think in these you know, unbelievably complex sentences. And, and it's, it's amazing 
to see these little short staccato sentences in the novel because you get to them and it's like you got to, to dry land for a second and then you have to go back on the water. But, you know, I was thinking about these, these short sentences. I was thinking about this page, 127. It says, We talked of Henry quietly. This is uh, Rosa talking. We talked of Henry quietly, dash, that normal, useless, impotent woman worrying about the absent male, dash, as to how he fared, comma, if he were cold or hungry or not, comma, just as we talked of his father, comma, as if both they and we still lived in that same, in that time, which that shot, comma, those running mad feet, comma, had put a period to and then obliterated, comma, as though that afternoon had never been, period. But we did not once mention Charles Bond, period. And I was thinking about this concept of this, the short sentences in this novel work like, like shots out of a gun, and when you think about the Civil War, the Civil War is this, this grand, um, epic, uh, de- you know, um, defining moment in American history, even to the point where 150 years after it's over, the, the, the echoes of those shots are still going. And when you think about no matter how many bullets were shot in the Civil War, realistically speaking, the, the number of bullets versus the number of seconds. I mean, you know, there are going to be a lot of hours and days of just, you know, making camp and pursuing the enemy and, you know, taking the, the injured to the hospital and amputating people's limbs and all, the, all these elements that go with war that don't involve shooting at each other. And yet they all, they all matter. They're all part of the war. And I think that that's how these short sentences work. They work like the bullet shots that make it a war, right? If you don't have any shots, if no one's shooting at each other, it's, well, I guess it could be a war with just swords. But this sense of it, it doesn't really feel like a war without the gunshots, and yet the gunshots are so, I mean, you know, those are long gone by 1910 and certainly by 2020. And yet here's this novel depicting this war that that seems to grow. I mean, it seems to have grown in, in, in immensity and in importance from 1865 to 1910. And, you know, maybe to some extent it has waned in importance because we've had these other big wars since then. But I think that the sense of these shots in the air are like these short sentences that... that you notice them the way that you would notice, uh, you know, the first shot of a, of a volley, you know, the first cannonball that comes across, like it, it would disturb the piece. It, and, and maybe that's part of what Faulkner's doing with these short sentences is he's disturbing the piece that comes from like what he said, kind of just swimming in these long winded digressive sentences. It can lull you a little bit. Yeah. And, and you get into this, you know, like you have to just meet the meet the truth face on, or meet meet. Um, like I said with Rosa, what she doesn't know, or what she what she won't concede, or whatever. You know, these. It's a combination of like, gosh, when you go back into the past and you're looking for an answer and you don't find it, ooh, that's like getting hit with a bullet. That's that's one that's one type of short sentence. You go back into the sense and you don't the past and you don't want to find something, but you do. Ooh, that's like getting hit by a bullet. There's there's a Jason sentence or that you know whoever else and in that sense of these short sentences 
in some ways they work as shots, some ways they work as slaps, some ways they work as connectors, some ways they work as like, like the, you know, the, the kind of wedding, the, the, the appetite, um, the appetizers. Um, but that sense of these sentences in this novel are so finely made that you can't read it and think, gosh, this guy really didn't know the English language, or this guy didn't really know how to how to put a sentence together. He put sentences together that y- you think it's like we're looking at a you know Alexander McQueen outfit or something like that. It's like you're like how how did you think to to do that? And somehow you did it, and it works, and it looks cool, and it's it's like I couldn't have done that. And it's just because he's William Faulkner's so adventurous with his prose style because he is not playing it safe. And making this seem like a safe topic to, to think about, he's making it seem dangerous intellectually, as it as it intellectually dangerous as it for us to read it as it was physically dangerous to be a soldier in the Civil War, and it's just an interesting, you know, element of this novel is just the prose, the the writing, you know, and and um, uh, that's why I want to talk about it in this episode is I I just feel like. Even if you hate all the characters, it's worth reading just for just for the sentences. Yeah, the the violence with which I think the set pens are imagine talk, talking to each other with violence or treating each other with violence. Like they're not like tender with each other, you know. Even the ones who love each other, like Judith and Henry, they're not their love is not tender. It's like I think that's probably why. I thought Emily Bronte had a connection with with Wagner is because of the these people aren't tender with each other even when they love each other. Um, the terseness and the the fact that Henry and Judith were described as talking back and forth as if they were slapping each other in the face and not wincing, you know, just slap, slap, slap. Um, the short sentences, like you, you said, they have violence, um, which. Also makes me think of, I made a little list of words that I was noticing recurring in the book, too. And one of the words that I wrote, some of them are what you would expect, like dust or fever um, or transform. Or effluvium (laughs) or impregnable. (laughs) Or fate. Um, But one that comes up quite a lot is repercussive. Interesting. A repercussion is when something um, strikes back. Like, right, I hit you, you hit back. Um, And we talk about repercussions of your actions. Your actions hitting you back, like karma, you know. And um, But percussion, you know, you think about drumming or the sound of gunshots. Um, The the dialogue, when it takes those turns, because it's usually the dialogue that takes those turns, you know, um, it it has a power, a, a violence. Yeah. And I think that's a that's a perfect word to kind of end on is this idea of repercussion versus reparation. You know, uh, reparation means repair. And uh, this novel is not about repairing. It is about the repercussions of one man, Thomas Sutpen's actions on people that never knew him, like like Quentin Compson, and in addition to obviously. Charles Bond, Henry Sutpen, Judith Sutpen, Rosa Coldfield, Ellen Coldfield, Sutpen, Goody Hugh Coldfield, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, the sentences have a percussive 
element to them, right? They they have they have this sense of long, like a like a um, <laughs> like a gong, you know, and it just it just never seems to fade out to to, to silent again. And then there there are these other like you know like you know shot shot sounds or, or you know, snare drum kind of smacks. Um, and that's you know that's part of what I think is the music of this you know in some ways this is a novel in some ways it's portraiture in some ways it's music and 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 you know there aren't a lot of writers that can do multi modes of art in one you know limited to words on a page um, maybe if you like cheat and do some sort of like PowerPoint in the middle of your novel like Jennifer Egan did then you add this visual component or like James Joyce had sheet music in the middle of Ulysses but this sense of William Faulkner really does uh, I think he's a composer I mean you know he he's composing these sentences and, and it's it's interesting that, El, that Rosa has been described as this person composing these odes and these these eulogies for these confederate soldiers because she really she seems to compose her sentences as she speaks and they come across like no one has ever taught that I've ever known and then Jason has this element of he seems to just digress all the time like he he seems to get lost in his own sentences whereas Rosa never is lost she just is it's like she's not going to finish the sentence until she can just hammer down the gavel. And, you know, Quentin and, and Shreve kind of have to, like, find the offbeats. Like, that's that's the feel of, of reading the, the different narrations and sentences because there is this element of harmony in the novel and this element of are all of these portraits so, um, you know divergent that that you can't see a picture of a person no i think i think they are they're illustrative of thomas Sutpen and henry Sutpen and charles bond and etc etc but they're all told with words and they're told you know with with metaphors and and what an interesting novel it is to read just for the metaphors and and you know faulkner starts that in the first page and then you know the metaphor at the end, like we talked about, uh, I think a time or two ago, we talked about this idea of Jim Bonds, you know, being the king, future kings, and and you know running the world. Well, that's a metaphor. That's not. I mean, there's only one Jim Bond. But in, and Shreve says he's going to be the descendant of Jim yeah. Bond, which is a good clue that he's meaning something kind of abstract. And and so there's this, you know, the the use of language, the use of metaphor, the use of um, just the, the length of sentences and, and the, di- the design of paragraphs and, of course, the infamous 1,288-word sentence, um, it, it's all, I think, amplifying the content of the novel instead of nullifying it. And um, it wouldn't be the novel it is without the sentences it has. Um, and, and obviously we'll talk about the novel as a whole and this, this uh, ultimate episode. So we're in the penultimate episode now. But uh, when we talk next, we're going to just talk about Absalom Absalom, you know, in context of 
American literature and, and just kind of our reading, uh, you know, our, our personal literary canons, like what we've read and, and where does it fit within those things. And um, I think it was interesting to talk about the sentences at the end rather than starting with them because it, I think it helped us to talk through all the characters and, and the plots and the themes and all those things to really be able to like close read some passages and get a lot more out of them than we would have, you know, before. And that's part of why I think rereading is such a, a potent skill. I mean, if you are a Christian, you you better get good at rereading because you're going to reread the Bible. Like, you're going to reread some passages and you're going to get some new things out of it. I know I do. And, you know, the sense of the power of the words on the page hitting different, so to speak, if you want to borrow some meme speak, uh, you know, this novel hit hit different as a 37-year-old than it did last time I read it as like a 30-year-old or 31-year-old. Um, and certainly it hit, hit different for Whitney versus, you know, 20, 21 versus 37. But that's that's part of the beauty of, of literature is that it can continue to be powerful um even just at the prose level, like you can read a sentence and just be moved by it, just like I did last episode where I cried. Um, but, you know, this, this sense of the prose of this novel is, 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 is its own masterpiece, uh, but it's, in a way, is it the frame of the painting or is the, is the novel, the, you know, the plot, the, the characters, all that, is that the frame to the prose as the prose being the painting itself? And that's Whitney. You can you can join in and what and tell us what you think. I don't what's, know. What's the ultimate artwork of this novel? Is it is it the prose or is it is it the content? Yeah, I mean, I actually was imagining one day um, what it would be like to read a straightforward novelization of the Thomas Upton story, um, and I think it still would be a good story. Like I think that Faulkner is a it's a good storyteller in more straightforward terms too. Like I've been reading a few of his short stories this week and um, then they're still a little narratively complex. Like he'll have a narrator embedded within a narrator or like um, have almost like the whole town consciousness being the narrator for the story sometimes, which I think is similar to some things he's doing here. But even when he tells, you know, a more straightforward story, like reading his biography, you hear about, what a good storyteller he was as a child. Um, he could just compel people to listen to him for hours because he just was never done coming up with new stories or like transforming his old family stories into like even more exciting stories. So I think it is a good story and it would make for a good novel in the hands of a more um, just kind of conventional novelist, but it wouldn't be the same story. This is a story, this is a meditation on um, time and power and survival and all sorts of things that I think the narration actually, like, helps create the meaning for. So, yeah, without this narration, it would just be a different story, like Sartre said about Sound of the Fury. Um but at the same time, I do think, like, I've read stories that were told in a kind of experimental way with these incredibly long sentences that 
kind of every sentence felt as if it were, were trying to be a poem. And I yeah. wasn't very compelled by the story sometimes. Like, I think some writers decide to write in that style. They don't have much of a story. They're not very compelled by their characters. And it feels a little tedious. It's like I'd rather read one poem and yeah. just pause than read 75 poems in a row because you wanted each sentence to be as polished as a poem, but there's no story compelling me. There are no people compelling me. I think yeah. Faulkner strikes a good balance with that. Yeah. And, and we'll talk more about that, you know, in the, in the last episode uh, coming up. Uh, it just was it necessary? Did he need to write this story this way um, to cement his place in literature or to write the best, like had he not written the best novel yet written by an American yet up to this point, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, we'll talk about some of those questions and, and many more uh, on the last episode of Summer Reading with the Deals, Season 1, Absalom, Absalom by William Faulkner. So we'll look forward to talking with you then. Enjoy your day. Bye-bye.